interesting to kind of be in a little bit different order of things. Um, I'm already I'm already out of order, and you know I've been gone a couple of weeks, and it's just I'm a little bit disoriented. But but this is really good. Well, we started a, a sermon series um, actually a long time ago. It feels <laughs> over a month ago, called Ten Words, and it, and um, Ten Words is a literal translation of the title in Scripture of what we more commonly call the Ten Commandments. Um, most everyone, whether you're religious or not, you, you, you're aware of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, that epic moment when Charlton Heston, I mean, no, it was Moses, right? Um, went up on the mountain to meet with God, and God etched into stone the things that God wants the Israelites to do. I mean, just, just an epic moment in the history of the world, really. And yet, how much do we really know about the Ten Commandments? When's the last time we cracked open our Bibles to Exodus 20 and really took a good, a good, good look at them? And, and, and our hope really in this series is to see what these commands are and see if they're still relevant to us today. Um, I think it's important to think through that. Um, James, can you actually click the lights up so I can see a little better everyone's faces? I think that's much better, much better. So now I can see you. You can't, you can't go to sleep on me, or maybe you can. Um, well, as we saw the first week of our series, we talked about Jesus and how he, he, he thought the Ten Commandments were relevant, right? In Mark chapter 12, Jesus actually takes the Ten Commandments, he summarizes them and defines them as the greatest commandment, right? As, as if all of them together somehow summarize the whole law of the God, and if they're still relevant to Jesus, maybe they should be relevant to us as well. And, and if you can remember back to the middle of May, <laughs> we started this conversation by looking at the context of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments aren't simply a list of rules, a, a list of um, laws that's hanging in the Supreme Court of the United States, <laughs> even though they are, right? They originate from a particular time, a particular place, what, what actually was going on in the world, what was happening with the people of God as these Ten Commandments arrived on the planet? I mean, the context is always a good place to start when you're trying to gather the meaning of a passage of Scripture, right? And when we don't look at the context, oftentimes we end up um, distorting what the Bible is trying to say. So it's really important for us to consider the context, and just allow me to rebuild this a little bit. Um, what we found as we looked at the time and place of the Ten Commandments is that the Israelites have just been rescued by God from 400 years of slavery. And I don't think we fully grasp what 400 years is, right? 400 years is longer than our nation has been around, right? And they were slaves for that long, 400 years. Would that have any effect on them, you think, as people? <laughs> Obviously, right? They didn't know anything but that. And yet, when we have this amazing moment on the mountain, it's only been three months since they crossed through the Red Sea, right? Three months. That isn't such a long time, really, right? You think about it, we're almost through June. We're almost a third of the way through the three months of summer, right? They are truly newbies to this whole freedom thing, right? And in all honesty, these last few months for them really haven't been all that shiny. 
even though God has been so gracious to them, saving them from slavery, they've, they've done nothing but what? Whine and complain and, and wish for the great days of slavery. I mean, can you imagine the great days of slavery? Do we ever do that? Oh, I just, I remember the good old days back when we were slaves. It was, it was such a nice time. Um, going back to life without freedom. But that's really all they knew, right? That's their comfort spot. That's how they show their gratitude to God, by whining and complaining. And, and the truth is that the Israelites don't know much about God. They don't. Yes, their ancestors from long ago have had some experiences with God, but, but it's been a long, long time, right? And yes, God has powerfully saved them from Egypt, and he's been faithfully leading them through the desert with this pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. Oh, and by the way, he's also fed them and gave them water to a group of millions, actually, right? He's done so much for them. But who is this God, really? What do they know about God in general? I mean, all they know is Egypt's gods, right? And so this monumental moment starting in Exodus 19 when, when God leads the Israelites to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses to the top of that mountain, and God explains to Moses that he wants to make a covenant with this people for them to be his people, his treasured possession. And he would be their God, right? Read with me Exodus 19.4 again. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, set apart from any other nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is what, what God is wanting to share to the Israelites through Moses. And this really is the context of the Ten Commandments. God is setting up the ground rules for their relationship. He's, he was defining the relationship, what it would be like if they were willing to choose him as their God, right? It's the whole setting. And it really is sort of like a marriage ceremony. I think we think we have a hard time picturing covenants, but that's what the marriage ceremony is. It's a covenant relationship within marriage, <laughs> There are these promises, right? I got an opportunity to go to a wedding yesterday for uh, a girl that was in our kids' ministry and youth group at, at CUNA. Um, just a great time together. But, but in that ceremony, every one that I've been to, we have these promises, right? He promises this. She promises that. I mean, it's a covenant. It's not a one-way relationship. Both of them have parts to play. And, and really the hope is that they will take those promises, those vows, and, and incorporate them into their lives as they live out this covenant, this relationship together, right? And for those of you who are married, I mean, when, when was the last time you pulled out and dusted off those vows, those promises that you made <laughs> to your spouse? I mean, those are important foundational promises that we've made to each other, right? Right? It's the making of a covenant. We, we are a people 
because of this covenant. This is what we promised to do. And that's why it makes sense that the first commandment is what it is. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Isn't that a natural part of a covenant relationship, right? I mean, it's a unique relationship. It's, a, it's an exclusive relationship. As in marriage, one has to save yourself for the other, right? And only the other. You can only have one kind of that covenant, right? You can only do that once with that person. Choosing that and <laughs> choosing that they and only they will be your only love, right? This is your obligation in the relationship. And for the Israelites, what were they choosing within this covenant? They were choosing that God would be their only God, right? There can't be others. That was their obligation in the covenant relationship, in the thing that they were promising. If they were going to do this, God would have to be their only God, right? And that, what's interesting, though, that's not where God actually starts the conversation. He doesn't actually start the conversation with, this is your obligation, and should you somehow deliver on it, then I will do my part, right? Where does he start? We've looked at this a month ago. <laughs> the Ten Commandments don't start with defining our part of the relationship. It actually starts a verse before, defining his part of the relationship. Verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What is God talking about when he brings that up as the first part of the relationship conversation, the first part of the covenant? Well, first of all, he calls himself your God, right? I am your God. The relationship actually has already started. I've already proven myself. I've already been faithful. I've already been good. I've already rescued you. You already know who I am, right? I've already done my part. I mean, how do they know them? He's the God who brought them out of slavery. That's how he describes himself. It all starts with God and what he's done. God and his grace. They already know that he's good. But we also know something that they don't know as far as the Israelites go, standing there at that mountain. I mean, if we've been reading through the Bible, through Genesis and now into Exodus, what do we know about God that they don't? Well, it's not just one moment in history where God has been faithful, rescuing them out of Egypt. He's been rescuing them for a long time. But there are people for all, for all sorts of situations, right? It's not just Egypt, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. There's a long pattern of God being faithful, of God being good. And I think we can't miss this part of the conversation between God and his people. Before God shared anything about his expectation for the people of Israel, where did he start? He started with all that he'd already done for them, right? He started with, I'm not only your God, I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Savior. I've been good to you. I've been faithful to you. Before you ever do anything for me, remember, I brought you out of slavery. Look at my track record. I'm good for you. <laughs> and this is still true today. Think about it. We weren't saved when we asked Jesus into our heart. Now, this is hard for some people to think about, but, but we were saved when Jesus died on the cross, paying our debt, 
and then he was raised again, God had already done the saving long before we came along, long before we ever did anything to deserve his love, right? What was Israel's part of this relationship? What is our part of the relationship with God? It's choosing. It's choosing to accept God's loving action. It's choosing to enter into a covenant relationship with him and allow him to be our God, right? By responding with, with a life of following him, a life of obedience, knowing that, that really that God, look at his track record. <laughs> we can know by looking at how good he's been that he's got our best interests in mind. We can trust him with our lives, right? We can choose to trust him with our very lives. Isn't that what we prayed when we became followers of Christ? Lord God, we are so thankful that you, you've already paid for the, paid the price. You are so good, and I can trust you with my life. Isn't that what it's about, right? So God moved first. God loved us first. He is faithful. He is good. He's proved it over and over again. And our response, well, it begins by putting God first, right? Humbling ourselves, denying ourselves. <laughs> Where does that come into? Well, it's choosing to allow God to be smarter than us, right? To be bigger than us, to know more than us. Choosing to allow him to be our king and not us. Jesus said it this way, to love God with all, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Trust in his goodness. Trust in his love for you. Don't have any other gods before him, right? And the second commandment actually builds on to the first. Still in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, it says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And with really, without getting all the way into that sermon, and, and you could listen to that uh, online, um, but what was the struggle that week? We were talking about idols. And that human beings, we have struggles with idols. We do. Making something, anything more important to us than God. Making something more essential to us than God. I just have to have that as part of my life, right? I have to. <laughs> and just as when the Israelites build a golden calf to their God, these idols in our lives, I mean, you think about it. What's a golden calf going to do for you? Totally powerless, right? We trust in them to help us. We give them the power, but yet they're totally powerless. I mean, we, we, we bow down to some of the stupidest things ever. I mean, we talked about that day, my lucky socks, right? If I just had my lucky socks on this day, it would go so much better. I mean, what? <laughs> and maybe it's us again and again deciding to solve our own problems through our own strength. Maybe that would be a, a bigger temptation for us to make an idol, right? Us being the idol. You know, God, this is a little thing. I don't need to bother God with this thing. No. He wants you to bother him, right? He wants to help you. He wants to be your God. Don't even start down that road, even with little things. 
don't have any other gods before him. Right? That's what this is about. And to add to that, just thinking about this whole image thing, we making an image of an idol, but even an image of God himself, right? An image will never be the real thing. Never. I mean, if you took a snapshot of someone or something, we just looked at a lot of pictures, you actually don't get to experience that. You only get to see it. It's a, it, it's a flat part of the experience, right? It, it flattens God. It oversimplifies him. God is a living, active, relational being. He is not static. He is, you can't contain him in a box. Whether you put him in a metal box or a wood box or even your own theology, right? Your own thoughts about him. He is bigger than that. Do we know that? <laughs> your idea about God, it is not 100% fact because he is bigger than you, right? He's above our thoughts of him. Allow him room to be God, right? Don't have any other gods before him, <laughs> even smaller versions of himself, right? Allow God to be God. And really, when you think about it, when you think about the context of the Ten Commandments and Commandment 1 and 2, with those in place, I think we are safe to move now into the third commandment. Now, we typically, I think, think of this next commandment as the swearing commandment. Um, you shall not swear is what we kind of get out of this commandment. But, but I just want to forewarn you before we get into this to not let that assumption distract you, okay? Think with me here. Stay with me. There's just so much more to this, so much bigger than that. You guys remember the skit Abin Costello put on, um, who's on first? Um, going to date myself here, but... Back when I was a kid, a sixth grader, I, I went to Caravan Fair. Anyone been to Caravan Fair? You guys have never been to Caravan Fair? Someone raise your hand, please. I'm not going to. All right. All right. Caravan Fair. Um, and we performed this skit. A buddy and I performed this skit, skit together. Um, and this skit, one of my favorites, Evan Costello, they create this humorous situation between uh, a peanut vendor and a baseball manager. Anyone heard, heard of this skit before? You can raise your hand and it's okay. Good. So I don't have to fully recreate this because that would be really hard. All right. Well, the manager is actually trying to explain to the vendor who the players are on his team, right? But the names of the players on this team are really confusing, such as the first baseman. His name is who? That's his name. So who is on first. He's the first baseman. You guys all got that, right? So when Costello, acting as the vendor, asks the question, who's on first? Well, the manager answers, yes. Right? That makes sense. Are you guys following me here? Um, he's the first baseman. And the answer is obviously confusing and frustrating to Costello, and it leads him to, to kind of the following conversation. Costello says, I mean the fellow's name. What's his name? Who? No, the guy on first. What's his name? Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing, and then he gets interrupted. Who is on first? So Costello, obviously frustrated at this point, says, Why are you asking me? I'm asking you. Who is on first? That's his name. 
right? I mean, you following me here? That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Well, that's it. That's who? Yes. I mean, you're following me here, the conversation? Just confusing just because of the name. When I bring this up, just to say that words and names are important, aren't they? And if you don't fully live into the context of what the name is coming from or the person or the context of the situation, things can get a little bit confusing. And that's where this third commandment actually comes in. It's talking about the importance of understanding a name, the name, and using it correctly. So still in Exodus chapter 20, the third commandment is found in verse 7. And the NIV has it as this. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And the more literal translation of misuse is to take his name in vain. And we know that translation from the King James Version and the, Nazarene, or the New American Standard Version. And really the Hebrew word for misuse or vain is shav. And it means really a number of things, but primarily lying or being deceitful or even causing something to be meaningless. You can really get to start thinking about this. And God is saying he doesn't want his people to use his name in a way that is dishonest. Think through that. This means we need to be really careful about God's name in our everyday speech. We don't want to present God in a way that is dishonest, disingenuous. And really, when I start thinking about this commandment, it is really, it's an interesting conversation. But in all honesty, when you use his name in a curse, and that really is what we're doing when we say the words GD, um, you know what I'm talking about? We're saying something about God that maybe we haven't fully thought through, right? You're calling down a curse on somebody when you say those words, right? You're saying, may God damn you. God damn you to what? Well, it's never a good thing, right? It's usually talking about the eternal fires of hell. <laughs> That's usually what we're talking about, right? Is that really what we're trying to say when we use those words. And do you believe that this is the desire of God in this situation? Is that how you think about God? That that's actually what he would want to do for you in that situation? Then what are you saying about God, right? That's where it comes back to. <laughs> do you really believe God is running around smiting people? Is that your view of God? Because your view of God is part of this conversation, isn't it? How do you think he feels about this representation of him? Right? You guys following me in this conversation? And you could say, but that's not what I mean when I say that. It's just words. Right? Well, how important is what comes out of our mouths? It's pretty important. I think we tend to downplay this commandment. And look at what James says about tongues. <laughs> He says in James 3, verse 5, he says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, 
but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole, body, the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. I've actually used the word hell twice in the last two minutes. Isn't that crazy? But that, those are some pretty strong words, aren't they? So yes, they're just words. So yes, your tongue is just a small part of your body. But certainly words can be powerful, can't they? Does your tongue respect God? Does your tongue represent God well? <laughs> be careful what you say. And that leads us to the second part of this. To misuse the name of God could also mean that we put it to no good use, to no good purpose. We end up using the name and getting no benefit from it. We just make it commonplace. It's just another word, just like we're saying, right? I'm not meaning anything by it. It's just another word. Then wouldn't it be better use of that word to actually cry out to the greatest being in the universe? <laughs> Honestly, how would we like it, just thinking through this this week, if, if the whole world used our name when they were yelling because they were angry? Brian! 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 I mean, can you imagine? That would be irritating. <laughs> These are the usual thoughts that we have about this commandment, Right? And there are good thoughts for us to think about. But there is also something much deeper in this conversation. God also wants us to remember that there is meaning in the very name. And it's not just another name. It's not just some generic name of God. That when we use this name, we are thinking about a particular way that God is and we are being genuine about it we are being honest about it we actually believe that God is actually like this and part of our problem and even understanding this conversation as we get into it is that is that we have such a generic name for God right what is our name for God God <laughs> What does that even mean? So allow me to attempt to describe this to you. And I'm going to try to stay out of the, the cliff deep waters here. I'm going to try to, to, to do well here with this. Um, whenever you're reading your Bible and you see the word Lord in all capital letters, look at, look at the screen of the verse 7 there. The word Lord, it's in all capital letters. It actually is, is, is calling out a specific Hebrew name for God. You see that? Does anyone have their Bibles open? Do you see the capital letters even there? The Lord is in all capitals. And, and this is an attempt, really, actually, of the editors of the Bible translations, almost all the translations, um, to help you know that this name of God that they're translating is the name of God 
that God is specifically referring to in the third commandment. Okay? And they're trying to give you this particular name so that you can have honor and respect for it. Okay? Does that make sense? Now, in those instances, when, when the Lord is capitalized in the Hebrew Scripture, it's actually referring to this context, the Ten Commandment context. He's talking about this covenant name for God, right? The name that is being referred to is God's actual personal covenant name being used. And we usually refer to this Hebrew name as Yahweh or Jehovah. And now that you have that information, <laughs> let's look back and see how God describes himself in verse 2 of Exodus 20. You see that scripture? It says, I am the Lord, actually referring to that, you see it's capitalized. I am the Lord your God. He's saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see what he's doing? He's actually describing this name Yahweh. He's describing this name Yahweh in context of their saving, right? He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer, the one who wants a relationship with them, right? You guys following with me so far? It's almost as if it's God is saying, here's my name. I'm the one who delivered you. My name is Yahweh. Nice to meet you, right? I'm the one that delivered you. Out of all the gods that you know, I'm him, right? <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, so don't use my name incorrectly. Don't think of me incorrectly. Remember who I am. Remember which God that you're talking to, right? In fact, if you're paying attention to the Hebrew, the idea of name even impacts what we've already read in the other commandments. Look back at, at the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You know what the names for gods in that particular scripture is? The name for gods is the lowercase Elohim. And that's a generic name for God. It, typically, if when it's a capital E and it's no longer generic, it's actually someone's name, that's actually what how they referred to God almost all the way up to this point in Scripture in the Old Testament. He is Elohim. He is the great creator. He's the powerful one. Um, <clears throat> but God especially likes this name, the one that he's giving to them right now, <laughs> Yahweh. That's what he wants for himself. Most of the time, the Elohim name came from other people's descriptions of him. This one, he's all about telling them who he is, right? And what's interesting is that God called himself by this name just recently in the, in the story of Scripture. If you look back to chapter 3 of Exodus, you know what that story is? <laughs> it's God coming to Moses in a burning bush, Right? And he introduces himself to Moses. How? Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? You remember that? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he's basically saying, I am the one who's always been, who always will be. I'm the, I'm the guy that's been with you all the way, right? This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am 
has sent you. And then look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, you see it? Capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's describing what Yahweh is. He's, he's a relational God. He's in relationship with these people, right? He, Yahweh, has sent me to you. And do you see the last part there? This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Isn't that interesting? Later on in Exodus 6, we see it again, verse 6. It says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. You see it? I am Yahweh. <laughs> and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. He's describing what Yahweh is like, right? What is he like? He's a saving, redeeming, loving God, right? who wants to be in relationship with them. That's, that's what he wants to be known as, right? And then we find a really interesting scene in Exodus 34. I read it this week and it's like, man, I don't remember reading this. But when the Ten Commandments are being formed for the second time, verse 4, it says, So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning. And, and as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands, and it says, then the Lord, and again, you're following along with the Lord, right? Then the Lord came down in the cloud, stood there with him, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Trying to get, that it, get this in your heads. This is who I am, the Lord. I am Yahweh. And then he describes to them what Yahweh is. Look at this. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. You know who Yahweh is? He's the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving witness, wickedness, rebellion, sin. I mean, do you see what Yahweh is like? <laughs> is that an amazing description of God? In fact, if you start looking at God's conversation from this point on in the Old Testament, you will see that God starts with his name over and over and again, over again. And he starts almost all of his comments with, I am Yahweh, your God. This is who I am. Don't forget it. I mean, what's he saying? I'm the one who knows you. I'm the one that's always been with you. I'm the one that's been in relationship. I'm the one that saved you. It's the relational side of God, isn't it? And this seems to be how God wants us to know him. How God wants us to remember him. I mean, his name is so much bigger than just a word, right? So much bigger from a passing even God, right? It's describing his very being, what he is like. And he seems to want to be remembered and related to as the saving God, right? Yahweh, your God who saved you. That's his name. I mean, what does that even mean to us? What would that even look like to, to fulfill this commandment, to not misuse that name? When God made this covenant with these people to be his treasured possession, 
how were they, they to live into this covenant fully, right? I mean, when you think about God, when we, when we call on his name, what kind of God are we referring to? What are we thinking about who God is as we're talking to him? I mean, isn't that important? And that, that's a part of this name conversation. Who am I seeing God is, right? What do we think about God? And since this name is his covenant name, the name that really is tied to their very identity as the people of God, the treasured possession of God, right? Whose name is tied to their very existence. How do our lives represent the God whose name is like that? I mean, do, do you think he even cares about that? How we see him? When we don't act as graciously as his name deserves to other people, <laughs> would that be misusing his name? Is that part of this commandment? And again, I think we can relate to this within the other covenants that we know about, that we have experienced. The covenant of marriage really works in this. I mean, when I talk about Wendy, or even treat Wendy in a way that does not value her within the terms of the covenant that I have with her, that the covenant infers her value to me with her covenant title, my wife, right? Am I not misrepresenting her title, her name, when I don't speak with her with that same value that the covenant that I've made with her to love and to cherish? I mean, think about that. Is that part of this misusing the name conversation within the covenant that I've made some vows, I've made some promises, I've made some covenants, and now I need to live as if those covenants are true, right? And if I don't treat my wife like that, then I'm misusing that name, wife, because that name, wife, was built by the covenant, the promises, the vows, right? Does that make sense to you guys? But I also, I think there's some application in this command to even think through the generic term that we label God with. I mean, it's interesting to think about. I mean, doesn't a growing relationship, a shared experience, cause us to have more intimate names with each other, right? And I think, again, about covenant relationships. Do we ever get past calling our spouse wife <laughs> or husband? Come here, wife. I mean, I don't, it almost sounds disrespectful a little bit, right? Um, but as we go through life, do we acquire other names for each other, right? Whatever they might be. I mean, just generic ones that we use. Honey, um, that means something to us. Love of my life, beautiful. Maybe even names that refer back to special moments that we've had together, Right? And it makes us think of those moments and what, what our relationship was like back then. And yet, even then, we can misuse those names, right? When we try to take advantage of each other using those names. You know what I'm talking about, right? If I go to Wendy and I'm really wanting something from her and I, and I use one of our special names, honey. And I know when I'm doing that wrong, why? Because she says, don't honey me. That's, that's a misuse of the name. That's what we're talking about. That is the third commandment. You've got to think through what you're 
who you're treating your person as, right? Who you're treating God as. I mean, do you think God would enjoy more intimate names of us for him than God? <laughs> hey, God. <laughs> I mean, that maybe recall special moments that we've had together. Great father, good shepherd, friend, savior, king. Do we see, see how this works? Do you kind of go on where I'm processing here? And we don't want to just throw the word out there again. That could make all sorts of messes. That, that even could cause some anger. Look at Jesus. Remember in Luke 6, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I mean, titles are important. Jesus took them seriously. God takes them seriously. Acknowledging God is our creator, that, that we belong to him. Acknowledging God is our Lord, so we should follow him. Acknowledging God as our Savior, so we could be grateful to him, right? And then living a life that portrays that. I mean, can you imagine living a life that contradicts how you just called God? I could. If he is Lord, then shouldn't we be following what he told us to do? And if not, are we dishonoring his name? We really are, aren't we? I mean, remember the word vain in Hebrew can also mean thoughtless, meaningless. We don't want to make our, our faith into a religion of going through the motions and thoughtlessly talking to God, thoughtlessly making promises to him, mere lip service. The actual name of God is his personal covenant name. We really should treat it with, as great treasure, right? The Jews wouldn't even speak the name. I'm not sure that that's the correct approach, actually, here. That also says something about your relationship with God as well, doesn't it? And just as we do not want to go through the motions in our relationships with our dearest friends, with our family, we don't want to go through the motions in our relationship with God, do we? So again, where are you in this third commandment? What has God been talking to you about? And even if your problem isn't swearing, there's, there's quite a bit more to this and anticipated, right? Taking seriously how we see God, how we talk about God, how we treat Him. Taking seriously how we talk to Him and call Him, how we live our lives representing Him. I really like John Piper. He has this interview in 2009 that I found, and he says this, I think taking the Lord's name in vain is more than, oh my God, or Jesus Christ. It, it, it is that, plus more. The positive way to look at it is to revere God, to love God, to delight in God, to know God, to fill up God with all that he is. And then out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth will speak. 
And I would also add to that, our lives will speak. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we do thank you for all that you are to us. We do thank you that you are the Yahweh God. You want a relationship with us. We want to be your treasured people. I mean, that's amazing that you'd even desire that for us, Lord. Would you help us <laughs> to be all that you truly desire a people to be? Would you help us to live into your name? We're so thankful that you're a God who saves, a God who redeems, that you are our helper, our friend, our Lord, our King. It is you that we hope for. It is you that we desire to follow. Will you fill us up so much with your presence that you help our words to represent you well? Would you help especially our lives to represent you well? Lord God, we will be so thankful that you're a part of our lives. And we will give you thanks <laughs> and give you praise for you are deserving and worthy. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Could you stand with me as we close? <clears throat> Our benediction comes from Psalm 23. It starts with verse 1. It says, The Lord. <laughs> See the words? The Lord, talking about Yahweh, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, Lord. You bless us so incredibly. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord, <laughs> Yahweh, forever. Amen. People of God, we serve a great, a great and loving and rescuing God. So this week, would you pay attention to your words, pay attention to your thoughts, pay attention to your actions, and allow God to bless you and help you to, to remember who it is that you're in relationship with. And give thanks to him for who he is. And if and by God's grace, represent him well, right? Don't misuse his name. May God help you to not misuse his name this week.
May God work in your hearts as you trust in him. You are sent.